Hello and welcome to the first of hopefully many conversations I'm recording with folks in our industry. My name is John Alsop and for many years I've been developing for the web, writing about that, and for the last 15 years or so, running a series of conferences called Web Directions, where I have the great privilege to meet with many people who at various stages of their careers are really having an impact on our industry. For our very first conversation, we have Aaron Walter. So Aaron was for a long time the head of design at MailChimp, and he more recently has been involved at Envision as a vice president of design education. He is renowned for speaking and writing and his book Designing for Emotion is just out in its second edition, a decade after its first edition. We talk about that book and what's changed in design practice over the last decade and how the second edition of that book addresses very different emotions from the kinds of emotions that were front of mind for all of us a decade ago in what must really be considered a far more optimistic time than late 2020 is. So to enjoy this and other uh, conversations as they come, you can subscribe to our podcast. Uh, you can keep an eye out on Twitter for when we announce upcoming conversations. And you can hear Aaron and a whole raft of other speakers at our product remote conference coming up in November 2020 uh, across four Fridays, each Friday focusing on a different aspect of product design and product management. But for now, uh, please enjoy our conversation with Aaron Walter. Thank you, Aaron, for your time today. My pleasure. Now, I've got a grey beard, so so you, people could actually tell my age, but you, with your boyish good looks, people might not appreciate you've actually been, you know, a, a practicing designer for, for quite some time now. So I thought we might start by thinking about how you've seen the profession evolve over the last um, yeah. 15 to 20 years that you've been involved how, you know what did it look like when you started and how you know how's that changed and and perhaps a little bit about where you see it headed next yeah well first i need to point out that my hair it kind of looks blonde on camera but this is mostly gray so yes well earned it's been 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 around the block a couple times what's you know, when I got into the web in the 90s, I actually started in CD-ROM. So the medium changed quite a bit, physical media to digital, you know, networked media. Um, but the thing that's like most profoundly different, especially even in the past five years. So I, I spent a lot of time in the past five years studying design teams and looking to kind of see how they work and where they stumble and also just like the common traits of ratios of designers to developers and various things. And what's fascinating to me is there's been a big investment in design in, in these past five years that I'd say 2015, a large design team was like 25 to 30 people. And these days it's not uncommon to see teams that are like 130 people, even at an insurance company. That's not really, does not fancy itself a, a software company. So Design is a function. 
in a business creating strategic advantage is that is more understood than it ever has been. And so there is a lot more investment in design and that leads to big challenges, which are all people problems of like, how do we operate at scale? We've got a large team. How do we, you know, handle operations and get people to collaborate and and so forth. So that's what I see happening right now. Um, Framing that to also draw some contrast to where it was in the early part of the 21st century, where we were really kind of forming infrastructure is the way I think about it, of, you know, the, the, the medium itself and our technologies were forming faster connections. And that was shaping the way that we designed and the way that we worked. And in many ways, we, we were trying to figure out like, what what is this that we're doing? We, we fabricated this term UX, user experience, to kind of broaden design because people thought we were just, you know, dealing with fonts and colors. But it was a lot of really navel gazing stuff, like inward looking, how do we work? What are our tools? What are our processes? And how do we talk about our work? And then there was a shift around 20, I'd say about 2015, 2014, 2015, where it started to focus a little bit more outwardly of like, okay, we know what we do. We know how we work. How do we actually plug in with other people? Because this whole like designing in the corner, being the special kids with our own language, expecting other people to invite us to the party, that's not working out so well for us in, in, in larger organizations. So there was a shift towards relationship building, partnership, working efficiently. And, you know, thinking about where it's headed, I see design to, cons- it's going to continue to kind of grow and expand. I think we could look to the history of engineering and how engineering scaled inside of organizations as a, a, a way to kind of understand what could be next. I think that design is in need of some core methodology that guides us. Maybe that's design thinking. Maybe it's already here. But just as agile as kind of guided engineering, it feels like design could probably use some solid framework to help just kind of establish from team to team, from company to company, how we operate, what a successful team looks like in a box. And that, in turn, will give us opportunity to communicate more effectively with executives and those who are investing in design. These conversations are brought to you by our brand new platform, Confab. Confab, that's got two Fs because it's all about fabulous conferences, is a collection of hundreds of presentations from past Web Directions conferences. But not just that, we are increasingly adding conference presentations from other great conference series around the world. Currently, we have Performance Now, uh, Pixel Pioneers, Material Conference, and we have a whole range of other conferences coming on board in the coming weeks and months. So. To get access to the latest and best conference presentations for front-end engineers, for designers, for product managers, product owners, get on board Confab. We've got a range of free and paid accounts that give you access to everything from hundreds of presentations through to live conferences as well. So come see us, Confab, C-O-N-F-A-B.com, and enjoy the rest of today's conversation. So what do you think might have happened around 2015? I think we saw this interesting thing happen in the late 
like coming up to around 20, 2010 and obviously the rise of responsive web design mm-hmm. as a specific approach to designing for the web, which I think was driven by the ubiquity of, of, of smartphones mm-hmm. or the increasing kind of prevalence of smartphones, which sort of the, the theoretical ideas we've been talking about for a long time, of adapting to different devices and so on, became a practical necessity. But what do you think happened a few years later that saw the transition that you just sort of talked about? I think that I think the iPhone changed everything. And of course, there's Android as well. And just uh, the way that I think about it is just exposure hours that the global population was exposed to good design more frequently. Apple in particular came up with a, a very solid framework for what interaction design could be, should be. Also inspired people like, you know, that we saw animation coming back to interaction design the limited screen size kind of simplified and focused tasks that that made things a lot easier, just more usable as well. And so I think that CEOs, executives saw a shift that enterprise software that was overly complicated and um, difficult to use, you know, there, there was a bit of shame where people were smaller startups were starting to use these lessons from the mobile space to create better software. And then also, you know, we saw people going to work and they had just used a really great piece of software for their kid's soccer team or, you know, to do some personal project and they go to work and they use some awful piece of enterprise software and they think like, couldn't this be better? And that trickles up. So there's there's shame coming into the executive suite from peers, but also from subordinates as well. And so we saw companies start to purchase agencies. Facebook bought Hot Studio, and that was actually a very big deal. People like Meredith Black, Maria Giudice joined Facebook, and that's the origin of design ops right there, was operations from agencies coming into larger enterprises. We saw you know, big companies like Capital One buy Adaptive Path, and that brought in incredible talent, people like Jesse James Garrett join and kind of coach up teams and teach them how to work. So basically enterprises, large organizations realize that design had to be a really key part of everything they were doing, or they'd run the risk of, of looking antiquated, being antiquated, or being outflanked by startups who were doing things better than they were. Yeah, and, and so a part of that transition, I guess, what, and you, you mentioned this, is this increasing growth in the size of design teams. Mm-hmm. And if you go back a little bit before we were talking about perhaps the early 2000s, a design team will actually was one person very often. And, and they didn't just design, they often implemented, particularly on, on, when it came to web-related uh, technologies, their designs. I'm, I'm thinking of, for example, someone like Douglas Bowman, who in the early 2000s kind of helped revolutionize the way we we design and develop for the web and then moves to Google and is essentially, a, even at somewhere the scale of Google, admittedly 15 years ago, was still a team of one. Now we fast forward to teams of dozens, hundred plus you know, is that a trend you think will continue? And I guess within that trend, an increasing specialization, you know, is the role of the generalist and a general approach to design essentially a thing of the past? Or, you know, what, what does design practice look like in the next two, three, five years, do you think? I think a design, you know, design practice will look very similar 
the the difference is that I think more people will understand what design is and they will think of it less as pixels and you know how a thing looks and more about how a thing works. When I see companies who are going through a, a transformation, a digital transformation or a design maturity transformation, the first step in that, that process is proving out that design can do a thing that contributes to the value of the business. Like here's the thing we're trying to accomplish, revenue, churn, whatever that is. And they use design like a design sprint, solve a problem and prove that out. The next step is to start to bring design thinking as this methodology for solving problems to the rest of the organization. So doing workshops and bringing more people into that process so there's this like public relations piece that goes into that. I think that in terms of like team growth, we'll see more and more designers hired. Hard to say how big they'll get, but I can tell you that IBM and Google have probably the largest design teams on the planet. IBM's roughly like 2,500. And I think Google, I talked to Catherine Courage over at Google about a year ago, and she said at that time that Google had about 3,200, I think. So that's, but that's not a 3,200 person team. That's 3,200 designers across all of Google that has tens of thousands of employees. So um, just as engineer uh, engineers are sprinkled throughout an entire organization, you might go into a finance team and find an engineer. That's probably what's going to happen with design going forward, that design will pop up in lots of different places because you know, products, the things that we're building, even the internal tools, they need to be functional. And it's expensive for a company to build software that their teams can't use efficiently. So uh, the more that companies recognize what design really is as a problem solving tool, the more that it will expand beyond the confines of just just a design team that's sort of like center of excellence or, or like an agency model. It'll be just distributed everywhere just as engineering is. These conversations are brought to you by Web Directions and our online conferences, the next of which, Product Remote, takes place in November and December of 2020. We have four sessions, each of around three and a half hours, each focused on a different aspect of product design and product management. So if you're a product designer, product owner, or product manager, grappling with the challenges of a COVID-19 impacted world, Come along online and enjoy 24 presentations from amazing speakers right across the world, as well as the opportunity to connect and converse with fellow attendees. So jump on Product Remote at Web Directions, so webdirections.org slash product, and we look forward to seeing you there. Now let's, let's change things up a little bit. You're probably quite well known for your book, Designing for Emotion just in its second edition. So that's, you know, interestingly spans more or less the last decade. I think the first edition was around 2011. That's right, yeah. You're right. And, and so now a decade later or so, you've just kind of the second edition just, just published by the fabulous A Book Apart. What has changed in that decade from the perspective of, of the book and, and, the, and the focus you have? I mean, my, yeah. my first reaction is that you know, I imagine, you know, the focus we, we had somewhat naively in the early part of the current decade is, you know, like the positive emotions. We were designed yeah. for delight. 
But you know, I, I think we're not nearly as positive and optimistic a civilization even pre-2020 as we were perhaps in 2010. So what, yeah. what transition you know, changes have happened in that time in terms of your focus? So what have you seen you know, in terms of designing for emotion that, that is different now than it was a decade ago? Yeah. I mean, it's just such a fundamentally different world in 2011. Um, so I was writing that, that first edition in 2010, and I felt this great sense of optimism. Um, you know, I, I, I referenced the idea of like building infrastructure around that time. Like we're, you know, decade into the 21st century, we're still improving our internet connections. We've got mobile devices, pervasive interaction patterns. We've got social networks unfolding. It just felt like all these things were coming together, fulfilling the promise of the web, which is to bring people together and provide access to knowledge. And I think the, the cruel reality in the past 10 years has been that the, you know, the platform that we've built and all these tools we've built, yes, they have the power to bring us together, but they also have the power to tear us apart. And that is exactly what we've seen unfold, that we brought good intention to uh, our work, but the outcomes were not as we expected. And so the the challenge that I was trying to put to the design community, specifically the digital product design community in 2011 with that first edition was look to the past, look to our history, the history of design that has um, transcended just functionality of let's make a thing that's useful but let's also make a thing that enhances the human experience and makes people feel good. So architects know that if you design a building well, you can shape behavior and you can make people feel good. You can help them live their best life. Industrial designers know that they can make things that people love and, and feel attracted to. But in 2020, as we see all this negativity, we see, you know, elections being reshaped or influenced by these tools that we've built. We see a world where we're more divided. It's really clear that that idea of design for delight that was on the lips of so many designers back in 2011, is just myopic. It's just far too narrow an understanding of the human experience that, especially today during a, a global pandemic, what are the emotions that people bring to the things that you're designing? They bring a lot of anxiety. They bring a lot of stress. They bring fear. There's a great sense of mistrust after there's, you know, unending privacy breaches and hacks and just unethical behavior inside of companies. You know, we have to design for the full spectrum of emotion. That's the challenge. And that's the reframing of the second edition, which is fundamentally a different book. It took me a year to write that second edition. And um, it's because there was you know, just thinking about how the world had changed. And there were even false starts of like just trying to update it. But that's not enough because it's a different world and how we design for emotion, we have to approach it in a very different way today. Well, I couldn't agree more. And, and, and I guess one of the reasons why we programmed a whole session, so a quarter of the conference really around ethics and the challenges yeah. that, you know, ethical dilemmas face designers, perhaps more than anyone, is a guy's testament to where my head is at. So only last night, a, a, a designer who's not 
super young, but a relatively uh, new designer who comes from a business background, was connected with me, with someone else I know in the, in the design world, and, and is really trying to investigate this issue of design ethics. Uh, and, one, and is talking to a, a bunch of folks in the, in the industry around that. And, and she works for a, an organization that consults with really big companies at times who often come with, let us say, let's be generous, poorly thought out solutions that, that may have some ethical implications, yeah. you know, dark patterns or, 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 you know, like just problematic solutions. And her concern is, is how do you have that conversation with someone who is, you know, paying your bills, someone who, who you know, you're, you're the client of? But the same, I guess, the same ethical dilemma faces designers who work in-house yeah. as well. When someone in authority comes to you with, you know, suggestions of doing things that are ethically problematic. What are your thoughts around how, how you approach that? Obviously, we want people to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, but yeah. that doesn't always win the day. What are the ways that you might have approached that challenge in the past? How, how do you frame that consideration to get people to think perhaps about the long-term implications of what they're suggesting and how it's not all necessarily about the short-term kind of incentives that they want to see achieved? So I think that we can learn from our past here on this because it feels like it's 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 roughly a similar type of argument as we made you know in the early part of the 21st century those of us who were involved with web standards and you know the W3C and so forth many of us were arguing for best practices and accessibility that it's the right thing to do that there's this moral imperative to be inclusive about how we design and we would make those arguments and executives or clients would say like hey I don't have users with disabilities. And so that's not really an important thing. We're not going to invest time in that. And so our counter argument was fear. The lawyers are coming for you. When you cut corners and you're not designing inclusively, there's law, there's global law and case precedents that you could very well end up in court if you do not think carefully about how you approach this problem. And today, I think there's a ton of examples. I, I don't, I don't confess to be, a, you know, an expert in law necessarily, but there are certainly a lot of examples of major corporations that are in in kind of public, the public space, who have made moral, ethically compromised decisions throughout the development of their products. And we see there's a lot of conversation in the United States in particular around regulation. Um, we see that unfolding in Europe as well and in a number of other places. So regulation is coming to the web because of bad, bad actors and bad decisions. And also litigation is, is unfolding as well. So for a client, for a company to decide, hey, let's do something that, yeah, let's just kind of soften the edges or maybe look past this this ethical decision here and, and maybe press forward anyway, the lawyers are coming for you. They will find you and you will be held accountable. There's, there's lots of precedence for that. So that's the argument I would make. Yeah, sadly, it does seem that it's the stick uh, does sometimes work a bit better than the carrot, but I, but I do tend to share your your thoughts that that there you know I, there really does seem to be a pushback against technology 
you know, perhaps not entirely fairly, but certainly not entirely unfairly. And, and it seemed to me a really good strategic approach, even if you want to be cynical about it. Mm. I mean, Apple have made a great deal of how privacy is, is, is kind of yep. um, fundamental yep. to their product decisions and, and positioning themselves as fundamentally different to, to other technology companies. And, and, and I, you know, I think there's something also about using the, you know, using a strategy of, of, of ethical correctness as as a brand value and a way of, of differentiating yourself, particularly I think yep. in the world of technology, where as, as I mentioned and, and you know we both I think agree, there is a wave coming that will push back against you know the, the ubiquitous power of technology in our modern world. So it's certainly a challenge for folks, particularly when they they lack you know, power and, and, and mm. uh, privilege relatively in, in their own organization. But I hopefully one that folks will, will take on board because, you know, I come back to this thought that, you know, within our industry, we have a great deal of privilege. You know, many of us can choose who we work with and yeah. what we work on and, and, and using that privilege to work on things we think are the right thing to work on for the right reasons, I, I think is something I would encourage everyone who was able to do so to, to really do. Thank you so much, Aaron. Thanks for the book and the work and everything you've done over the last, well, we won't say how many years. I'll be kind <laughs> to both of us uh, in that situation. I'm really looking forward to your presentation at Product Remote, where you're actually going to kick off the whole conference. So uh, with we, uh, kind of designing for emotion in, in 2020. So I'm lo really looking forward to that. And I look forward to many more conversations over the coming years. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me, but also thanks for continually supporting design, engineering, product, this community around the world. It's, it's always been important, but it feels especially important right now. So thank you. Thank you, Aaron. We'll see you soon. So I hope you enjoyed our conversation today with Aaron. If you like more like this, well, Aaron is opening keynote speaker at our upcoming product conference for product designers and product managers. And we have a whole range of other speakers lined up for you across the month of November 2020. And keep an ear out for new conversations in the coming weeks with other great speakers from our product conference. Remember too, Confab is our fantastic new platform for watching hundreds of conference presentations from our conferences, but other great conferences around the world. So if you are a front-end engineer, uh, a product designer, a product owner, a manager, we have hundreds of presentations that will help you keep up to date, particularly at these really challenging times. So thanks again for listening and hope to see you soon at one of our conferences or for our next conversation.